All right, audience, welcome. Uh, this is the first airing um, of the, uh, Jake and Amal's podcast, uh, working uh, title, yet to be determined. Um, we will sort of think about that going forward. Is that right, Jake? Yeah, one day we'll come up with something. Yes. So Jake, uh, Jake, uh, my partner in crime here is... Um, a, a former housemate and, and, and wonderful friend who's uh, very well read and um, has taught me a, a lot about various topics and um, we share a lot of reading interests and uh, I think somewhat diverged over the last little while and we thought what a great idea that maybe we do a podcast um, to, to celebrate really our reading friendship um, yeah. Jake? Yeah, so it'd be fun to share some of our ideas and some of our thoughts with you all. Yes. So my name's Amal uh, Varghese and uh, Jacob Kamateros, um is my partner in crime. And uh, really what we're, we want to do is give you a run through in this first podcast of our reading year of 2017. So we, we did a reading competition, didn't we, Jacob? Yes. Yes, and remind me of my, what was the score of that? <laughs> I think you were you were ultimately crowned the winner. In fact, we should go out and find a little crown for you because uh, you were the winner. Yeah, so I think we read about 20, 24, 25 books each last year. Um, I think I won by a narrow margin. But anyway, today we thought we'd share with you our top three books each from the last the last 12 months. Um so in the spirit of that, um, did you have a, did you have a number three? Did you rank order yours or did you just pick out three books? It's a good question, Jake. Um, I enjoyed the majority of my books and I found it very difficult to pick my favorite three. So we've got an Excel spreadsheet tracking all of this, by the way, audience. We're not, I mean, Jake, Jake should take credit for that. He's set the whole thing up, which has been fantastic. Um, no, mate, I, I picked three books that I thought were quite different uh, and I enjoyed for very different reasons. Um, and as you know, 2017 was a, an interesting year for me. I lived, you know, in, in Canberra, in Sydney, in Broome, and I read these books in in all three cities, so one from each place that I resided and I guess they had a different impact on me because of the nature of where I was and the different things I was doing. And that's probably the main reason I've picked them and I'll, I'll come to it. I want to I wanna hear, uh, I guess maybe you can tell us what books you've picked and, and, and sort of why. Uh, I think we'll, look, I think we'll, we'll build the suspense. I look at my books from last year and I don't, I don't know that there was any... Um, that really had a profound impact on me. Um, so compared to some of the books I've had, I, I've read in the past, um, that did, you know, have a big influence and a life shaping influence on me. Um, I certainly felt that, um, there was a number of books last year that I really read for entertainment more than anything else. So when I was picking through and having a look at, um, what my, what my top three would end up being, I certainly found there was more of a theme of entertainment than there was of, um, probably in past years of, of, you know, really uh, non-fictional things that were pulling me in for, you know, 
to really change my perspectives on a lot of things. Um, so I'm actually going to start with, with probably the most vivid of the ones that, that I looked at, which was The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins. Um, I normally don't pick books off the, you know, the bestseller pile at the top. I like to think that I'm a bit of a maverick when it comes to, you know, your standard fiction that pops off the shelf and everyone else is reading. Um, so we actually plucked that one out to, to listen to as they are uh, on a drive to Melbourne and back as an audiobook, thinking, well, it's supposed to be thrilling, it's probably going to be good enough to keep me awake in the middle of the night. Um, turned out to be an absolute cliffhanger. So we, to, to the point that when my partner and I got home, we listened to the last hour and a half um, just as soon as we got home. We just sat in the living room in complete silence listening to this book. Um, so to give you a little bit of the background without giving too much away, um, it's a book told in... In first person, it's told from someone's from diary entries of various characters, but the main character is this woman named Rachel, who's is a bit of an alcoholic. She's kind of entering a midlife crisis, um, and she likes to make up stories in a way to and from work. She's got a long commute in London, and she she likes to look out the train window and make up stories about people that she drives that the train goes past. And there's this one particular couple who always seem to be having breakfast around the time, on their balcony, out the train around the time she goes past. So she's got a well-developed story about these, this couple, made-up names and everything. And, again, not giving too much away, but one day she views them, um, something that may be fairly horrific happening out the window, and she's trying to figure out if this was some sort of, sort of dream or not. Um, and that results in her actually diving into this world, not just not just being a viewer on the train, but actually getting into, into that world. Um, and I certainly found that it's just a very well-told story by really pulling apart different angles and different time frames from, from these different characters. So you follow, you follow members of this couple, you follow the diary entries of, of Rachel, and it meanders its way around this story of her getting involved and... For a lot of the story, you're really interested. It, it really pulls you into what's, you know, what's going to happen. Where is this actually? Where is this actually going? Um, you know, you're exploring her psychosis, and you're also exploring, you know, kind of how she interacts with this, with this world, and who these strange people are that you've only just met. Um, and it really pulls you along on this on this journey that kind of makes you keep on reaching for, for well, what's going to happen next. You know, we know this started with this horrible thing. What's what does that mean? You know, where where how are we going to get there? Um, so I certainly found that um, myself pleasantly surprised by um, by the storytelling, and um, I mean, look, it's one of those ones that'll keep you up if you uh, decide to read it late late in the <laughs> evening, shall I say? Um, that's probably the the best synopsis I'll give without wanting to obviously a book that's made by its its thriller aspects. You don't really want to give too many details details away, but um, certainly enjoyed that one um, far more than I ever expected I would. Um, and I think it makes a cut probably on the, just the pure enjoyment of reading the book. Mm. And, and you and your partner talk about, did you talk about the book after you'd shared the audiobook? Uh, not, not really. I mean, I think it was a shared journey of, of, mm -hmm. of going through. Um, I actually would certainly recommend the audiobook. It's not always an enhancer of the experience, but, um, I thought the voice actors on the one we heard was, were excellent. They did really enhance the story, but by bringing a bit of character into it. Um, yeah, I don't know that's one you, you so much discuss so much as it, it, it takes you on the journey of where you're going to go in terms of the, you know, 
what's going to happen. You're trying to figure out what's going to happen. So certainly more discussion during than probably at, at, you know, at the end, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's your first book. That's my first book. Girl on a Train. I don't know if it's... I, I didn't rank order mine. I had a bit of trouble trying to rank order them because I like them for different reasons. Yes. Which makes it a bit challenging to say this was the best book I read of the year. So that is one of three. Okay. So say. one of three. Okay. Now, we are in, quote, unquote, in the age of Trump. Now, I thought it might be worthwhile just putting some of our reading in that context, I suppose. And, and I have a great quote, which is by Barbara Tuchman who wrote a history of, uh, at least one version of the history of World War One, And I'm going to read one of my favourite passages. She writes that all the old boys which marked the channel of our lives seem to have been swept away. End quote. What's the context for this? Well, I guess in her particular instance, she writes about the prelude to World War One. So she explores basically the period between the 1870s until July 1914, when effectively the war um, erupted. And effectively the sentiment that she is conveying is that the regalia, the... Um, the, I guess the, uh, the, the ways of the old world will cease to expire from this moment onwards because the rules have been written and, and that brings me to, to her, one of my other favorite passages, which is she starts the book with this of history's clock. It was sunset. And the sunset of the old world was setting in, in a dying blaze of splendor, never to be seen again. Now, I don't know if the second code applies to, to 2017 and the feelings that we all have uh, given uh, Donald Trump's presidency, but certainly I felt the, her sentiment about all the old boys which mark the channel of our lives being swept away, at least in the political context, I felt, God, no one knows where this presidency is going because it is such a statistical anomaly. All the rules have been rewritten. What do you think about that, Jake? Uh, am, I, am I the only one feeling that sentiment? Look, I, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting concept, but I, I think that um, sometimes we get a bit hung up on the tweets more than the content, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And I think if you, you know, looking at, at, say, a world right now where we say the old boy has, has disappeared, we mean that in the sense of that we're communicating in a different way, I think. Because if you look in some of the context of, of you know, the actual content of what he's produced and what he's done and, and what him and... Um, his rather confused Republican Party have managed to, to, to not do. 
Um, he's in some ways stayed the course on foreign policy. There's a remarkable continuity between Bush, Obama into Trump. What about you North know? Korea? He, Donald Trump is, is potentially going to meet Kim Jong-un and that is unprecedented because no, no, no other um, North Korean dictator has, has met a US president in recent history. Yeah, but I mean, look, certainly, like, in terms of, like, the North Korea situation is never going to be typical, if that makes sense. But, I mean, certainly in terms of threatening, in terms of continuing drone strikes, in terms of, you know, um, essentially holding up this, this American might and we will, you know, if you do this crazy thing, we will intervene. I don't think there's too many, you know, differences in terms of the actual content of what they're doing versus the rhetoric of what goes on on Twitter. So I think that probably holds true in some ways on domestic policy in which, you know, like they've been largely almost entirely ineffectual as a party, the Republican Party. They can't agree. Um, but they've got the corporate tax cuts that you're moving from 35% to Yeah, but I mean, corporate tax cuts are what? Like the most typical Republican thing to do? Yes. Like it's not like there's some groundbreaking... Whether you agree with it or not, I suppose like the, it's, it's that the, the tax cuts were agreed to and were passed because the Republicans hold both both houses and, and the White House. But, I mean, stopping the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, for instance, I mean, that's probably the, the most out there thing for a Republican to have done, to, you know, take that more yes. protectionist step. I mean, and that's probably the one that's out there. But, I mean, in, if you think about it and go, mm. well, I mean, compared to the rhetoric, like, the completely breaking the rhetoric in the way a president communicates and, and yes. being presidential is what he's done. But mm. in terms of the actual content, I mean, you know, what some... Some, some little minor things around tariffs versus, you know, I mean, it's not exactly a wholesale shift in, in mentality from anything the Republican Party's been in the past. So, But he's the first it's a, it's president, a, though, Jake, who hasn't released his tax returns since, what, President Nixon? And he's the f- first president since Nixon and that period who hasn't basically... Uh, put himself in an independent situation where his business interests are not conflated with his executive administrative interests. You still sure, have his family think... running the running running the Trump enterprise mm. and and still effectively being part of that orbit. So you have all these things that are so unconventional. What do you think of all of that? Is, is I, think, I, mean, all... I, I think I mean what what I suppose I'm saying is I think there's an interesting um, I'll call it a dichotomy going on between what's happening in the world of policy and yes. of what actually um, fundamentally influences the lives of Americans and right. for us in Australia, you know, the whether or not we end up at World War Three um, versus versus the whole question of how one should behave when one is a president and when one is in office. Yes. And I think there's an uh, there's an incredible change going on in the world of behavior and what is expected and how a statesman should behave and how a white house should function or completely not function in this case, um, versus the actual outcomes that are happening in a policy sense, which it's interesting. It's interesting to watch the coverage and to kind of follow it because it's the, the rhetoric is not playing out in the same way in the, in a policy sense. What about um, the TPP and all the protection, the tariffs, the protectionist sentiment that's coming out of that 25% tariff on a whole bunch of goods coming in from China? That has real implications. I was reading in The Economist. Yes, I name-dropped The Economist. Sponsorship, please, anyone? 
I was reading in the Economist that um, the you know the representatives of the sort of the farm pig um, pork industry are de- uh, most deeply distressed than they've been in over a generation because of these protectionist measures. Because I mean, part of it is is the counter ma- measures that other countries will employ when America decides to to. Um, put these tariff measures. So, so there is a policy. There, I guess, there is a policy repercussion based on his Trump, sure, Trumpian sure, economic. Sure. But, but what we're talking ways. about, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, I suppose, I when you think about the um, the collective trauma that was felt across the world when he was voted in, yes, and you think about the number of things from you know building a wall to Mexico. I suppose that uh, you know that, that may happen <laughs> and wall the Mexican border, but you know some some of the rhetoric and. Um, you know, the, the fears that were attached to it versus, you know, I mean, like cancelling a foreign, like, you know, a trade deal and, and raising tariffs, which is not out of line with what he'd been saying the That's whole time. True. There's true. nothing, it's, it's nowhere near, you know, the cataclysmic change yes. that we were talking about. It's, it's a change and it's yes. odd for a Republican president, especially like the party of Reagan and you know, yes. all that tax cuts, but they've still done corporate tax cuts and yeah. through all of this. You know, it's it's an interesting kind of dynamic. I just don't think it's... I think that, sure, there are changes. There are some things that he's doing differently, but I just don't think it's quite, you know, the crazy insanity, everything in the policy front that we were expecting when he came into office. So Donald Trump is not too crazy, is what you're saying? Uh, I didn't say that. I Manageably in crazy. A poli- in a policy sense, sure, yeah. But, I mean, we can... Uh, you, you, the point could be made through all of this, right, that, like... Part of it is the dysfunction of his White House that still hasn't appointed all of its relevant officers yet more than a year in that is not functional enough to actually manage to do that that seems to bleed staff and leak like a sieve. And, you know, a Republican Party in Congress that can't pass its own bills at all to the extent that the Speaker's just, you know, has basically resigned. It's, you know, I mean, you could argue that things could be much worse if the Republican Party wasn't, you know, completely dysfunctional at this point in time. No, that's a that's a fair assessment. Okay, uh, listeners, we we thank you for your patience. Um, we realise we're we're probably um, about at the seventeen eighteen minute mark, and we we haven't quite spoken. Uh, so so sorry, Jake. Um, we 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 should probably. <laughs> Uh, get back to the books. That was a nice detour. So where because... did that quote come from? I, I want to know because I, I assume this relates to one of the books you read. Yeah, sorry. This is um, Barbara uh, Tuckman's uh, book um, on uh, World War One. I. I forget. Actually, for, I, the name of the book, I think, was called uh, Guns of August. Yep. Um, and, and it is a wonderful book. But, but we're not here to discuss... Barbara Tuchman's, um eloquent literary style, uh, but I thought I thought that sentiment really captured or it resonated with me, um, particularly last year, um, the first year of the Trump administration. But but let let's move on, uh, Jake. Uh, to to so maybe I'll move on to my my book. Yeah, your first book. Let's hear it. So book number one for me, uh, stress test. Reflections on financial crisis. Oh, what a marvel! It was not dry at all. 
I say that sarcastically, of course. So I well, read... I made your top three, so... It can't, have been, it can't have been too dry. I assume there's a reason it's here. Yeah, so the reason is twofold. I got to really delve into this book and sort of reread passages a number of times when I lived in Broome. I had plenty of time. To myself, and um, there are probably a few things that I probably will go through that I thought deeply resonated to me. And so, so listeners, the the book is really is 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 by Timothy Geithner, who um, finished up as the secretary of the treasury, um, and uh, in in the U.S. And really, he penned in a cathartic sort of reflection, his analysis of, of the root causes of the global financial crisis and his complicity, first as uh, sort of a, a regulator in the New York uh, Federal Reserve and then later on as a policymaker um, when he was a treasury, um, in really allowing the seeds of the tumours, shall we call them, uh, in the financial sector to sow proliferate, and then left virtually unchecked and uncontained during the boom, boom years, how that then allowed, uh, I guess, rogue banks and financial institutions to infect and then cripple the US and, and, and sort of the wider global economy. Um, and and Geithner... Geithner's sort of central question is, you know, how the hell did we allow such complex financial products, as it turns out, junk financial products, which even studied financial acrobats could barely understand, how the hell did we allow them to be double helixed with mum and dad mortgages, most of which, you know, ended up sort of defaulting. How do we allow that to be one of the major triggers for a global financial crisis? And how did no one, regulatory, administrative, legislative, how did they not catch this before it, it erupted effectively? In, and as you probably remember, Bear Stearns was, was probably the big one that nearly went under and was sort of recaptured uh, through a special deal by the uh, Federal Reserve. Um, they brokered a deal effectively mm. with, with JP Morgan. And then Lehman Brothers, I mean, like, there was a whole tranche of, you know, things that could have gone on. So he talks about, I guess, the Domino theory, which is, I guess, pretty easy to understand. You know, we we nearly faced it here once... once one institution uh, goes down and it breaks down confidence in, in the financial system. And he goes through, I guess, how, how they responded to the crisis. And for Geithner, the crisis really was born from a lack of imagination. And this is important for us, Jake, because we're, you know, we're policy officers. This, this is the stuff that we think about. How do we prevent the next financial crisis or the next crisis in, you know, cyber or whatever it is, you know, the next thing that could potentially... And did he think that they... Did he actually think that they could have solved a lot of that from a regulatory perspective as in outside of Congress? 
or is in within their own capacities? Or I'm just trying to understand his, his context here. Certainly, he certainly he thinks con- like I mean does does probably doesn't criticize Congress as harshly as I think he could have. Congress didn't do its job. A Republican administration was, I guess, light on government, and and didn't want to place an uh, or burden the the private economy. And let's be honest, mate. Wall Street has a lot of power, and would have been placated basically. Um, at least the administration and and the legislators would have been placated by Wall Street money, primarily through you know funding um, donorships. And we know the the cozy relationship between Washington and and Wall Street. Um, so anyway, I find that incredibly illuminating into, I guess, how the global financial crisis started. Um, and, and I guess I, and I'm sure you think about this as well, I think about how we can manage those risks in peacetime. So, you know, what Jake, what, what are we, at 25 years or 26 years of uninterrupted economic growth without facing a recession? In Australia? Or in Australia? Yeah. Really thinking about when we're in good times now, let's make sure we have, we build the right infrastructure. In, in bank, the banking system, it might, be, it might mean having adequate capital reserves so that, you know, if, if confidence ever ebbs um, in, in global demand and um, people want to pull out money, that, that, that money exists in, within banks. So, you, um, look, you mentioned that it was a dry book. I'm just, I'm intrigued because yes. it, it, it made your top three in a, yes. in a list of 25 books it got. It <laughs> yes. got up the top. I mean, it's an interesting question because you jump in with, yeah. you know, the first thing you said about it was, you know, a sarcastic comment about it's it being a, a riveting read, yeah. which obviously a book about, it, you know, you don't expect from a book about the financial sector. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question because obviously you've learned enough from the book that it's, mm. it's made it to the top three. So, mm. I, I, I'm interested in pulling out kind of what why it gets to the top three. Why does it get the... Uh, you know, the Amal stamp of approval. <laughs> it's, well, it's not the gold standard, that's for sure. But two reasons. So I'll address the why I think it's dry. It's dry because it goes through the specific financial instruments that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury used. Things like the TARP fund, how it work, um, you know, Various bailout and equity injections into into Citigroup when they were when they were down. All those, I guess, the minutia of details in policy and regulation, that is not particularly exciting. But then you take a, sort of the macro view. It's oh, that's really cool. It's a financial crisis that that's that's brewing, and here people that have dealt with it on the ground. I guess almost like the fire extinguisher coming in and. They're trying to, you know, put out the fire and then, and then really making sure that, you know, the alarms are sound, you've got, you've got, you know, fireproof insulation and making sure that the next crisis, I guess, I, the country is more resilient for the next crisis. So I, I think when you take the macro view, it, it's a very interesting book because Gaithner then, you know, talks about how they responded absolutely um, and, you know, some of the successes and failures. And overall, it was a success because, you know, the economy, you know, started doing well not too long after. I mean, it's just been a slow drag um, out of, out of, into economic recovery, but then also some of 
the I guess legislative mechanisms that they were able to push through both in within the administration but also through Congress and I th- and which in theory like the Dodd Frank bill and a number of other measures but it in theory all the and and better coordination between all the regulatory authorities which didn't really exist or was quite ad hoc and lackluster before the financial crisis so I think it in that sense, there are lessons to be drawn. And I think the reason I thought they're really important is because I think the good times won't last in Australia. I think at some point, there will be a crunch. You know, and, and I, I guess um, I wonder when that crunch will come, whether we're going to be ready. Yeah, I mean, look, an, an, an interesting question. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, it's definitely something to be said for lessons to be learned. I was just... um. I was just having to think because I, I did read a few books about this, but obviously back in 2010 and mm. you know or 20, 2009, shortly after the crisis, but in a, in a period when um I was probably uh, shall we say less knowledgeable about economics mm-hmm. as a first year uni student, mm. it's probably reasonable to say. Um, and yeah, I mean I mean look, there's a lot of things about it that that resonate with me and. Um, interestingly enough, one of my honourable mentions for this mm. this podcast, I will say, was The Fixers, which is a fictional book yes. about a person who fixes the US election <laughs> immediately after the financial crisis using money from <laughs> the um, from the the big mortgage lenders, the big banks, the big financial institutions, essentially. That the are, Fixers. The Fixers. So okay. it was someone who was fixing the election via funneling money from these institutions into people who would make the right decisions. I've got to check this out. Um, in, in, interestingly, um, complete fiction, but um, a very a very interesting book. Well, this. mate, but um, lack of imagination won't, seems like uh, that, that is the cure for it. No, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, was it, was it Gladwell who said that he always he always likes to look for the person who's... Mm. If he's looking for a, a you know a summary of a situation or mm. something like that, he likes to look for the person who was never the, the top of the organization. He always likes to look for the guy who was mm. was second or third in the organization, someone who was just an understudy. And his belief is that they always have the most interesting stories. Mm. Um, and I Why wonder, is that? I think he feels like you know there's there's less of a polished fame attached to them than mm. if they're coming from somewhere that's not from the top. That the inside story is how they make their sales, as opposed to the you know, the fame associated with their name. Yes. Because um, I certainly read, I mean, look, the books I've read on the financial crisis come from a very particular direction. I mean, you know, Joseph Stiglitz is, is one that I, I recall, which, you know, I think it was called Freefall, if I recall his book, um, about the financial crisis and, and laying some pretty heavy blame on some of our political apparatus for, allow, you know, repealing the Glass-Steagall Act and allowing yeah. a situation to happen that was entirely predictable given right. what happened in the Depression. You know, for those who don't know, the Glass-Steagall Act was put in place after the Depression because the argument was that the banks were allowed to amalgamate and become too big to fail and cause the economy to crash, which you could argue, and Stiglitz does argue, is, is largely what was happening. But also, um, um, it separated, correct me if I'm wrong, it separated the the investment bank arms mm. or in institutions from from the traditional banking deposit yes. sort of style institutions where I guess mum and dad or people like us would, would go in and put our money for safe safekeeping and 
expect some sort of return. Yeah. So the um the ri- essentially what it would allow mean is that the people who are making risky investments or things mm. like some of these investments that were being allowed to be made and that caught trigger the financial crisis yes. and some of the risky instruments that were being used by financial institutions. Yes. Um, were not able to be associated with people's um, you know, the layperson's finances that are mortgaging yes. their house. Um, which is, is essentially what happens, and the Dodd Frank Act, in large part, is you know recoups that. And we'll notice the Republican Party still talks about repealing the Dodd Frank Act all over again. Um, some lessons apparently can't be learned. Um, but it's look, it's an it's an interesting thing to, to obviously to learn from because I mean we definitely yes. didn't feel it quite the same way in Australia. No, that's and right. It's you know how much the our political response has to do that, how much our strong regulatory frameworks have to do with that. You know, okay, so, I mean, question in some ways, but I mean, you know, for, so, the so, hit it had in the world economy was, was enormous. So, Jake, I mean, we're, we're going to move on very shortly to your second book, but before we do, maybe... Which is a very different book, I shall say. It's... <laughs> Good, we're going to move on to a different vibe. So, so uh, maybe in 60 sort of seconds, um, we, we had the, you know, David Murray ran the financial systems inquiry and more or less showed that we we have a pretty stable financial system but all this stuff is happening with financial advice and do, like banks banks and their you know proxies um delivering shoddy financial advice and or not delivering advice but charging fees and charging fees to dead people i mean all this stuff is coming out of the royal commission um, at the moment, and we now know the current well, AMP's chief executive has ha- has been effectively forced to resign, and and CBA obviously had um their 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 CEO. Well, there's a new CEO, but previous to that, you basically um the CEO had to resign. So I wonder what your thoughts were and how all of what's happening now to the Royal Commission into the financial services industry could potentially be connected to um, the global financial crisis and stuff that triggered it in 2007 in the US? I mean, look, that's a, it's a very interesting question and one that I probably haven't turned my mind to specifically. Um, and I will say this from, from the outset because I think it, probably an important thing for the listener to know is that I'm not an economic mind. I'm, I'm probably more from the political bent than anything. Um, Look, I, th- I think a lot of things the Royal Commission surprised me not a, not at all in some yeah. ways. Um, I think that, like, behaviourally, we knew a lot mm. of, of dodgy things happen with banks. We but know... AMP, this is one of the most iconic Australian, you know, wealth management brands. And people are talking openly talking about the company folding because of these practices where they openly deceived the Australian Securities and Investments Commission by doctoring a Clayton Youth report. Like, surely this malfeasance is close to, to some of the things that were happening in the US in 2007 or and earlier. I mean, look, potentially. I mean, I, I, again, I'll say I'm not, I'm not an economist, but I, I, I mean, I, I don't think any of us are surprised that there's corruption or, or things going on. I mean, the extent of it, perhaps, but I mean... You know, it's an industry dominated by making a buck, right? That's what they do. That's where they make their, you know, their bones. That's why people go into it. It's a greed-dominated industry. You know, it's why it's why heavy regulation was always, 
you know, the best method to curb that. It's why they've always fought against heavy regulation that curbs their ability to take risks and to do, you know, anti-government things, I suppose, that, that get them, but they hide a bit of information. Um, so what's the solution now? It's early days, I know, but... Um, I don't know. I don't know what the, sol- the solution to this, this sort of stuff is. I think the politics are really interesting. Um, I think that the, the big banks definitely resisted for quite some time to this sort of thing. And cool. they'd, they, they essentially tried the same technique that the mining industry successfully used to, to cover mm. mining tax. You know, the pushing, well, you know, whose dollars do you think this is? We're investing your, you know, mum and dad investors' money um, in the economy, if they go after the banks, if there's a witch hunt on the banks, then it's mum and dad's money who's going down the toilet. Um, which, you know, it worked very effectively for the mining industry in terms of their campaigning around that, so who could blame them for having a go? But, you know, there's been enough baying for blood, there's enough people who are angry at the banks that, you know, if you if you go and have a commission and have, you know, people investigate your dirty, dirty laundry in an industry in which you are essentially fighting with other dirty players for money, um, I don't think... From any perspective, behavioural perspective, I was at all surprised that that were the beha- those are the behaviours you'd start finding. The question is, for me is really around what extent are those like to what extent are we seeing going to see those kind of aired? And, yes, um, you know the AMP is one example of that. It's this kind of where how, you know how far how far in does this go? Do we like you know we'll see what we uncover? And I'm sure if you go into a lot of other different areas, you're going to find something like that. But especially where there's a profit motivator in it, you know, um, so. Terms of solutions, I think it really depends how much we're going to find. I, I think that there's a, a really interesting and open question about, well, we know there's going to be corrupt practices, and I think everyone knew this going into this commission, and we're going to find out just how bad it is, and that's yes. probably going to dictate the response, because we, we've always liked to think that we're a little bit cleaner than the US, and I suspect we're probably still going to be a little bit cleaner. Even this sort of stuff is probably, you know, I, I think that we've seen enough in the, you know, Enron, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, um, Bear Stearns scheme of things going on in the US that you'd say that this probably doesn't stack up quite quite there yet um, but certainly interesting developments so um, we'll see where we'll see where that plays out um, I take it you've got some lessons or some thoughts on this given that you're I think raising it's, the question no I think it's early days uh, and I, I too it's sort of a watch watch this space and, and like you not a seasoned economic mind um, but I find these issues you're deeply concerning, I would say, and um, and yeah, well, look, we may we may come back to this at some point in future podcasts, but let let's change tack. We 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 we're probably now gonna move to um, your second book. So, um, are we happy to to do that? So my second book, um, I think I'll save was probably the most interesting to a mile to last, but I, the second book I picked was The Captain Class by Sam Walker. Um, I was lucky enough to read this book on the beach at Fiji, so apologies, listeners, if, if um, that's a sad image for you. Um, so Sam Walker is a Wall Street Journal um, journalist. He these days does various columns on more social issues. Um, he started his career really... Pushing, I think he was the first journalist for the Wall Street Journal to, to pioneer their daily sports column. So he's really led and created their sports um, broadcasting. 
um, obviously not a paper that's typically known for you know sport coverage, the Wall Street Journal. Um, and he essentially started from a question that is basically you know the the, the pub test. So, mm. what what's the greatest team of all time? And really, the secondary question: Why are they the greatest team? What's the you know what's the 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 link between the different great teams and why they're great? Um, and he decided at some point that he'd, he'd, you know, fluffed around this question and written a bunch of articles about it and different things. And he actually decided to do it systematically and figure out what he thought the best, you know, put some rules around it and figure out what he thought the best teams of all time were and why. And then look for a common thread. Um, so he, had, he put various rules in, in place that um, controversially, for instance, eliminated the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan era. Um but, you know, that they had to have maintained a standard of excellence for, for more than three years. That they had to have, have done this for a long time. That they weren't, it wasn't just, you know, out of the blue two years of success, Western Bulldogs win a premiership and disappear. Um, that they had to have done something new that the sport hadn't seen before. That it was a success that basically wasn't replicated elsewhere. Um, and that they had to have done it at the highest level of the sport. So, for instance, that means things like Australian rules football is included because... It's, it's one league and it's the pinnacle of the sport. But, you know, things like the Portuguese Soccer League don't mm. really stack mm. up because it's, you know, well, Portugal Portuguese League is much lower standard than, um, say, the Premier League or whatever. Yes. Um, so this this was his criteria and um, it was a very interesting adventure for him to, to just listen to him dig into, well, okay, let's work this out. And so they did a whole lot of analysis beforehand and they really narrowed it down to, you know, your, your top... Your, your tiered teams, they got their top tiers. And then eventually he got down to his top, you know, I think it was 11 or 12 teams that, that really made the cut. Um, and he went through and interviewed all of them. He interviewed the players, he talked to their coaches, he watched the footage, he went through the whole lot to figure out kind of, you know, because then you've got these these teams with these great achievements, you know, um, ranging from like the Collingwood Football Club, which um, is the team I support, winning four premierships in the 20s in the AFL, to the, you know, the All Blacks dominance in the 80s and, and in fact, dominance again in the 90s. They made it twice um, in the rugby. Um, down to the women, Cuban women's volleyball team that had an, apparently an era of absolute excellence in the mid-90s um, and barely lost a game in, in six years. So he kind of walks through these teams and the interviews and talks to players and he, he gives you that, that rich story and that, you know, that he's... He's a sports journalist, right? Like he's got he's got the this knack for telling these stories in a really like evocative way, um, but it's interesting when he starts digging into the the common threads between them and trying to find trying to find what it was. And and the thing that he found was that they all had um, great leaders, which is why the book is called The Captain Class. Um, and I, I say that not as a spoiler because I think it's it, he makes that very obvious from the first chapter. So. Um, you're not losing anything from the book to, to hear that up front. Um, but what is interesting about his, his kind of summary of the captain class was that it wasn't, the captains were not who you thought they were. They weren't actually the Michael Jordans of the world. Um, they're not the glitzy, glamorous one who makes the, you know, that team talk. Mm. Um, the captains typically were players who were not the best player on the team, in almost all cases. Um, they were mostly, you know, a good player but not a great player but were incredibly gritty, incredibly um, dirty in most cases. Most of them bent the rules, was one thing he found. Almost all of them did things that were 
um, if not borderline illegal, outright illegal in the way that they played. They played nasty, basically, is how you put it. Um, they did things that could only be categorised as cheap shots. Um, and they really pushed these boundaries of sportsmanship and they played in a way that just this, you know, almost insane will to win um, across the board. Um, so, I mean, it's definitely one of those ones that's a, it's, you know, it's a pub talker because of the, you know, the teams that were left out, the teams that weren't there. And, um, you know, for our, the, the Michael Jordan Bulls, for instance, that, you know, he quit halfway through. Um, but also he wasn't the lifeblood of that team that, you know, little known fact, but, um, you know, Bill Cartwright, the lengthy, lanky centre was in a lot of ways the heart and soul of that team in that locker room and the guy who really drummed up the, the players and, mm. and, and influenced players in the locker room in a very different way to Michael Jordan, who was an insanely competitive person, but, you know, probably didn't have the same impact on his teammates in some ways as, you know, the guy who gets in their ear. Um, so I found this to be a very entertaining book is probably the best way to put it. I don't think it was in any way life-changing. I think it was, um, it's just a good read. If you like a good sports story, um, if even just an evocative story, I think that he, he's just a, he's a very good storyteller. It's, it's probably light on the density. Um, it's only a couple of hundred pages, maybe 300 pages. It's, it's pretty, um, and a very easy read. So it's once one of those ones that you just kind of, you just read along with and, um, it's neatly broken up into, you know, talking about these stories that you kind of, I don't know, if you're not so interested in his broader quest, pub question of the, you know, mm. what's the greatest team of all time, you can still enjoy the stories he tells about the players and their, and their history, I think, without, you know, very little effort. So I just, yeah, looking, looking through my, my list of, of books, I, I, I came across that one and I just thought, you know what, I really enjoyed just I really enjoyed reading that book. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, was, was and you nice say reading. that, of course, wearing the Utah Jazz Yes. Hoodie. And, and obviously that is the team you support. Yes. Who incidentally won today against the Oklahoma City Thunder. I won't <laughs> say, but, um, yes. It's definitely one for the sports fans. I will say that. But, um, um, it's an interesting uh, thing though. You're, you're talking about some, um, some very deep and meaningful things in the financial crisis. And I'm looking at my list of books and thinking, oh God, you know, I've just been reading sports stories for the last 12 months. But... It's all right. It was. Uh, it definitely would recommend on the lighter side of things. All right. Um, I'll, I think we'll um we'll keep things moving. We'll flick to your your second book. Well, I'm gonna try keep this one short, uh, mainly because my my third book is uh, is probably a fair bit uh, that I wanted to share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so we'll we'll try to be concise. Uh, so I my second book um, out of the three is Island Home by Tim Winton. Yep. Um, you know everyone knows Tim Winton is from WA. He's he's I guess would you describe him as a quintessential Australian author? Oh, I think he's become kind of hasn't the iconic Australian author author hasn't he really? Yeah. Him and maybe like Richard Flanagan. In terms of you know, yeah, I mean in terms of describing Australian scenes and really like Australian yeah. culture, yeah, I think so. Reasonable description. So, as you, as listeners, you know, I spent some time in Broome, WA last year. But I actually read this before I moved to um, to Western Australia last year. And what I really loved about it, so the way Winton writes about WA's, at least this is a, a memoir about landscape, 
effectively it's 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 about him connecting to places so he picks location each chapter is basically based on a location more or less and he shares i guess his i mean he's is he he loves the environment that that's probably a fair assessment i mean he goes to some lengths to say he wasn't part of the environmental movement for a long time but then sort of co- got co-opted into that including being the poster boy for the save uh Ningaloo reef um sort of campaign because there was sort of a big campaign to have a, a, a big resort and and sort of fishing expedition and everything and the reef is quite close unlike the great barrier reef the reef is quite close to to the heartland uh to the mainland um of wa anyway the the I just wanted to share a few excerpts so so I don't do Winton any um, injustice. And I, I really like his writing style. I think it's quite Australian. I think it's um, the way he connects to the Australian, as you said, the Australian landscape and um, way of thinking about place. I think, um, I mean, I think it's a bit peculiar in that it's, his is quite WA-centric. He talks about the flat earth and the dusty sand and and for you know both of us you know Jake and I are both Victorians we just don't understand the concept of flat flat parched earth but there's this one wonderful um, passage he talks about driving sort of from the Pilbaras heading down south and he says uh, I was keen to catch a radio signal when I noticed lines of ancient dunes stacked away to the horizon huge and uniform as storm swells marching in from a distant sea stones glittered at their tory crests like the sheen of sun on water and i drove and stared so entranced by this oceanic mirage. And I just thought, wow, he's really sketched a specific kind of landscape. And I... Yeah, so I mean, look, I I quite enjoyed Winton. Um, I enjoy his other book breath and and sort of look forward to other other books but we might move on um and and maybe come back to no, landscapes I'll, I'll, i'm um i, I do want to i don't want to pick your brain a little bit so i mean okay. i so my, my experience with winton has probably been a little a little more mixed than most so just this is why i wanted to pick brain because mm. i found some of like his language very evocative but mm. um i found myself oddly disengaged with some of his stories and i feel like i maybe that's partly on probably where i was in my life at the time but um, so I'm just interested in, you know, that you, you put it in your top three and you're, you, you know, was that, yes. where does the story rate as compared to mm. the evocative language and the imagery he creates mm. for WA? Yeah, I suppose it is a landscape travel memoir. So the narrative is probably not one that builds consistently across all of them but but there's certainly a few things that i think winton would like 
the reader to to pick out. One is his love of country, how beautiful and how beautiful it is. Um, you know, we speak about the flat, parched, sun-scorched earth of, of Western Australia, which, which I think some of us on the east, the lush east coast struggle to um, relate to. I think he brings out a different element of, of landscape um, that, that perhaps most of us struggle with a little bit. You think about like a typical Arthur Street and, um, or Tom Roberts painting of, of, you know, the Victorian, um, cliffs or it's, you know, sort of bushy forest and, um, with Victorian era dressing and all that. You, this is, this is literally the contrast. Um, and I think the third thing is, you know, he talks a lot about how indigenous people preserved the earth and, and didn't, I guess, um, manipulate the environment so extensively to, to suit their own needs. And, and that is the environmental nature that I think I was alluding to earlier. And I, to me, that, that's probably the thread that goes across it, um, that, that he really has an appreciation of, of, of nature and, and the surrounds. Um, yeah. Yeah, all right. Okay. Your third book. My third book is, um, is The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, um, which featured on a number of podcasts that I listen to, um, and it's about behavioural economics, which I've read a lot about, and um, oddly, I, I happen to be writing, I, I wrote a, a couple of papers for work, not to give too much away, but um, in, a, in, a similar, in a similar vein, so it was interesting when this kind of book came out, the timing for me was particularly interesting, given that I was, I was actually working with this stuff, and this book, you know, suddenly... Michael Lewis is all over my podcasts, and um, and look, I picked up the book. Um, I thought he he really look. The book came from from an interesting place, and I thought it was very very well written. And what where he really came from was that he he'd written a couple of, of things that you may have been familiar with. The Big Short, for instance, that became a movie. Moneyball, which also became a movie. Um, and the Moneyball concept, particularly, was where he started with these these ideas of behavioral economics and. You know, looking at um, oh dear, and I can't remember the team that he wrote about. Um, I think it was the, it was the uh, the team in Oakland was baseball. Um, forgive me for not knowing um, American baseball particularly well, but they really approached you know the their their um, recruitment from a very mm. you know particular perspective of well, what's the actual the, the you know the cutting edge thing that helps you win that it's mm. you know getting on base and. How do we get the person who gets on base and and going mm. for guys who don't look the part but you know have a certain statistical element that gets them there? So the idea was, well, you know, your your kind of money ball is getting the right these statistical players in the right place, and so he wrote about some of this these concepts of you know gaming the system in some ways and, and looking at it from a real behavioural perspective and how we observe talent versus how talent actually performs, um, and he wrote a, a good piece about it and and as as if it was kind of new material because this all occurred in the early two, the 2000s right um and he had a um a pretty vicious um review from thaler and sunstein um i think it was richard thaler that won a nobel prize recently for his work in behavioral science and they 
um, have written the, the very famous policy book called Nudge, and they, they kind of really went to town on him about the fact that, you know, this stuff's all been well-studied. In fact, it was commenced in the 1960s by, um, you know, Kahneman and Tversky, two Israeli psychologists who really delved into all these, these concepts in great detail. And um, credit to Michael Lewis, instead of, you know... Um, going back at the criticism, he really took it on board and he called them and he said, well, who are these people and, and why don't I know who they are? And as a result, he came out with this book that he actually tells, kind of tells a story of behavioural economics, but through the lens of a biography of Kahneman and Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, um, who are two very interesting characters. Um, Tversky has, has sadly passed away some years ago um, and Kahneman eventually won a Nobel Prize in economics despite being a psychologist. Um, for his work in this field. Um, and he follows the story of their lives from the early 19... you know, from the 1960s, really. He touches a little bit on their early life, just to give you a bit of context, but it's really tracing on their life when they go into, you know, variously in military service for both of them, because they're in Israel, which, of course, at that time was in, in a state of war most of the time, um, through meeting and teaching and being mm. psychologists and really pioneering this field of work that is behavioural economics, that looks at things in a very different way. And what they were doing at the time was, was really was really groundbreaking, right? Like, you know, experiments and identifying things like what, you know, loss aversion that we feel, mm -hmm. loss worse in a, in a very different and more visceral way than we do the gain of something, and that actually we can motivate people in some very different ways. Um, and it's essentially the way that, you know, that people engage with risk or not. Um, and it's very, it, it's, I think it's really good as someone who's read some of these things to have someone who is a natural storyteller tell this story of this field and the development of this field mm. um, that can be quite complex because especially the work of Tversky and you know, Kahneman and Tversky, if you've ever read any of their papers, they are incredibly dense. They are written by academics and they read like they're written by academics. Um, so in terms of accessibility, like some of Kahneman's later stuff, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow, really open themselves up to an audience, but some of, you know, their, their early stuff, the actual stuff, you know, pioneering ideas yes. um, are actually quite mathematically based and very difficult to, to navigate and to understand. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought it was a really um, touching tribute in a lot of ways mm -hmm. to those two men who had a very interesting relationship but were both very interesting men in their own right. Um, so I really enjoyed this kind of, you know, exploring a field that I already knew something about, but really by understanding, you know, the, the kind of nutty, crazy relationship of these two people because they are in a lot of ways crazy. So the, the look, the, the anecdote I'll, I'll leave you with on that uh -huh. one is, is Amos Tversky, who um, he's just known as being just the crazy professor in, in a lot of ways. And um, he had very... You know, he had almost no shame in terms of what he was willing to wear to whatever event. And wherever he went, he was always the centre of attention. He's the most charismatic person, apparently, you'll ever meet. Um, and he had this weird way of, of just on, only engaging with things that really took his interest. So, for instance, if you send him mail, um, he had his mail in stacks by day of the week on, on the bench. And he had a bin at the end of the bench. So <laughs> if after seven days he hadn't got to your mail, it would he would just push it off the bench into the bin and shuffle the whole stack down. And day by day he would do that. And if he didn't get to it, well, that was too bad. He was known for doing things like he would just, you know, if he wanted to go for a run, he would go for a run wherever he is and whatever he was in. Um, <laughs> 
So, for instance, he, he, he was known for, for just dropping his pants and going for a run with his underpants because his pants didn't suit running. Even, <laughs> while, even while he was a university professor at some of the most prestigious universities in the United States. Um, and this was the man who, who was the co-creator of the modern field of behavioural economics, um, which, interestingly, took about 40 years to take off. When they initially introduced the concepts, it really went nowhere. Um, it was against the status quo. It was... Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, a, a mocked field of work that they were undertaking. Mm. Um, and, you know, Tversky would have also won likely a Nobel Prize because Kahneman won it, I think, uh, I can't recall exactly which year, I think it was 2001, um, for work he'd essentially undertaken with Tversky, but they don't um, posthumously give out the, the Nobel Prize. So um, Tversky never, never received that honour. But, um, yeah, look, I think delving into the... Um, the uncertainties, delving into the psychology and the imperfections of the people who came up with mm. what is a you know a, a fascinating field of work was just a, a very interesting piece um, to read, and I would highly recommend it. So that's my that was my third and final top book of the year. Brilliant! Thanks for sharing. All right, so um, I might I might try to make this as quick as I can. So, Parting the Waters was my third book, which is by uh, an American author called Taylor Branch. He's written a three-volume um, series um, on Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, effectively. Um, the first book of which parting the waters is, is the first. And, and then, um, you've got pillar of fire is the second book. And then at cannon's edge, the third book. Now I've read the first two and I'll just share why this part in the waters is probably my favorite, uh, because I followed and, and revered, um, uh, Luther King for junior for many years. And it was good to get a deeper understanding of this, each book is about a thousand pages. So you really get a, 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 a full understanding of the civil rights movement. So it was good to get an understanding of the man because after all, he was a man. He'd done a tremendous amount of good. Obviously we all know that, but he was a philanderer. He had his flaws. He, uh, you know, he had his intellectual, um, his, his intellectual weak moments uh, or doubts. He, um, he ebbed and flowed in his faith uh, many a time. And I guess I was interested to know what made the man. And his father was a prominent preacher in, um, in the South and, um, and he was privileged and is a relative privilege being, in a, being black in the South but, but still coming from, I guess, a privileged background in that his father gave him an opportunity to, um, to go to Morehouse College, which is a very famous black college in, um, in, in Atlanta, I believe. Um, and then later Crozer College for Graduate College and, and then Boston Uni. But, so, so I guess I'll, I'll probably get down um, to, to the nuts and bolts. So the civil rights movement obviously has a long history and, and Martin Luther King's not the first person to 
to create it. But he was the one to light a fire underneath that movement and progress it to a point where there were civil rights bills in the US Congress. You had President Johnson, Kennedy, um, really championing the civil rights cause. You had the Voting Rights Act that allowed African Americans to vote um, and, and various other, you know, sort of similar measures. And all of those bills and legislature that protected or um, favoured or advanced um, the plight of African Americans stemmed from King's belief that you could not just be an actor on the side. You had to engage within the political system. So I'll go through a couple of things that I resonated with me and I share parts of this worldview. So King's primary influencer was a guy called Reynold Niebuhr, who's, uh, I guess, a theologian, um, philosopher, is, is probably a good way to describe him. Um, and he wrote a very famous book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. He was a pacifist, and his fundamental belief was that injustice is a result of predatory self-interest, and rather than just, I guess, blind ignorance or uh, being oblivious to, to sort of the system. Um, and he was a big critic of, I guess, a, a lot of the, the, the literature at the time or the narrative of the time, which was, you know, this idea, at least in the Christian movement, of which in, in the South, you know, faith and Christianity is such an important part. This idea under the social gospel that the steady reason, sorry, the steady advance of reason and goodwill in sort of the modern age um, would naturally lead to society's progress and sort of social evils would be cured through that. And Nabor was, you know, one of the most prominent, I guess, advocates against that and, and, and really rebutted that whole argument. He said that there's absolutely no evidence that humans have become less selfish or less predatory as they become more educated and, and have engaged, you know, with, with sort of that, that whole ethos. And for him, war, cruelty, and injustice effectively survived because people by nature were sinful. And this, this by the way, like, drove people crazy because it, 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 it really was a big slap in the face to, to the Christian uh, social gospel movement, which, which was sort of one of the more, more powerful movements um, at the time, along with sort of the Marxist movements. For him, human nature, so, so King was influenced by all of this. For, for neighbor, human nature was such that individuals could respond to reason, to, to the call of justice, and even to sort of the love, perfection of the religious spirit, which was very important in the South. I can't mm. sort of emphasize how important that, that movement, Christianity was, how, how important 
and movement it was in the South. But effectively, neighbors said nations, corporations, labor unions, and sort of all other social groups would always be selfish inherently. And the only way to achieve progress, the only way society would respond substantively, was through changes in power. And so it meant, effectively, that it didn't matter how much piety and education and charity and reform and evangelism you engaged in, you would not eliminate justice without getting into the dirty political conflicts, effectively, is what Neighbour argued. And, and so you think about the race issue in the US, effectively, he said the white race in America will not admit the Negro to equal rights if it is not forced to do so. Irrespective of how many white men identify with the cause of the Negroes. So what he really was saying is you had to engage with the, the system. You had to be gritty. There needed to be a militancy and, and that was the only way to engage um, substantive progress and you can see that in king you know king king went on to you know lead marches and strikes and everything but everything had a political bent it was to it was it was to change laws it was mm. to outlaw segregation it was to get voting rights so african americans could could go out and, and vote it it was to protect certain certain rights under the Civil Rights Bill. And he personally met with President Johnson, President Kennedy, you know, Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, and it had to be celebrated and embedded in law. And whilst you can't change culture overnight, you certainly can change law, and that can slowly change things. And I think, for me, that was important to understand the man, King the Man. Mm. Because he was a man. He was influenced by all these things. And he spent some serious time when he was at Crozer in graduate college reading Neighbour and, and later would sort of engage more substantively with, with the man. But that was, that was probably the key takeaway um, from, from that book. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, it's, it's a totally powerful stuff. Um... I and an look an odd thought came to me that's it's 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 related but um in in a different way so I, I obviously studied um uh, I wrote a thesis on Paul Keating and and one of the interesting things that you kind of raised in the the theorizing there was around mm. how you think about the political world and and aside from the militancy actually um that's bears remarkable similarity to laborism which is one of the planks of you know one of the the multiple theoretical planks that make up the Labour Party mm. um, but that you know that concept of, in essence, accepting the world you're in. Mm. You know, you, for Labour, that was the capitalist system. That mm. Labour's actually an accepting party of the capitalist system that operates within it, but, you know, accepts that there is a, a, a you know, there's a movement wing that is the, you know, the Labour movement and, you know, the workers and the unions, but there's a political wing that has to happen in order to get your outcomes. Yes. Um, and I just, I couldn't help but thinking of that with, with, with this sort of concept, that it was actually, it's, it's 
it's theoretically in the same framework. It's the same concept, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a movement that has to happen. There's a there's a groundswell of support and of, of action that has to happen. But you know, there's a, you know, there's an, in in a lot of ways there's an acceptance that it is we operate within a system. Mm-hmm. That there is inherent in that uh, that worldview um, that we are within the system and you have to somehow navigate that system. Yes. Um, and I was interested in the theory of Niebuhr that kind of talked about militancy and. Um, did you, did you really touch on, did the book really look at mm. that, you know, that moving from militancy to, you know, a Gandhi's kind of, you know, um, pacifist elements that really... Yeah, you know, so as I said, King, as I said you know, Niebuhr is a pacifist, right? Mm. And, and it's important to recognise that even Gandhi, being, being a non-violent sort of um, protester, Gandhi stood up against the racial ID, you know, the, the IDs cards that you have to carry in South Africa. I mean, that's where he, he really built a name for himself. Um, and that is militant, right? Militant's not about, at least in my view, and certainly King's view, is not about pulling out a gun. It's about um, non-conformism. It's about uh, protesting, but... But, but doing so in your own way, and they chose non-violence. So you're, you're right, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, there's a thread there that comes from Gandhi, you know, that flows on through to, to, to King, but that militancy, I guess, is, is, is not to do with arms per se, but it's about revolutionary ideas that will change the status quo fundamentally. So I, w- I want to go back to a, back to a point um, at the start of this, um, to just change tack a little bit, because you, so you, t- you obviously got drawn into King, um, particularly, and I'm, I'm interested mm. in where you got to, to, to King being an influential figure, because you talk about this, mm. an influential figure to you, that is, because you yes. talk about this book, and stuff, you know, obviously very interesting, but I mean, in order to be, like, kind of as engaging and captivating in some ways, it's about that, you know, you've idolised King as well. Yes. So, I just, I wanted to kind of explore that, if you're willing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so, you know, I, the, probably two main reasons. One, one is I grew up in uh, Africa, you know, until I was just under 12 um, in, in Lesotho. And I grew up in, effectively during um, apartheid and sort of post-apartheid period where there was, you know, much racial discord and, and a lot of issues. Uh, so Nelson Mandela was sort of revered, a revered figure in, in, the, in the home, in, the, in my local community. And, and, you know, Mandela took a lot of... Um, a lot of things from, from King's playbook and Gandhi's playbook that were probably more militant. Um, so, so I guess that has always been with me as a person. Um, and, and I've always been interested in social change, creating, creating social change um, and, and trying to really find out, I guess, what drives different people. And, and I'm you know, quite um, so, someone invested in my faith and that guides um, a lot of my actions. And... I guess really understanding how we can change the world using Christian ethics and, and King King I guess is emblematic of that in, in certain ways. I said it at the start, he's you know, he was a philanderer. I don't agree with a lot of a lot of um, what he did, um, in, in his sort of personal life, um, and being an absent father and a whole series of things. But as a leader, as a leader in the African American movement, what they call the Negro movement, um he, he, you know, he was a transformational figure and he was very young and, and incredibly charismatic. And I, you know, I guess there is a personal resonance there that, that I definitely 
would like to be like at least embrace the leadership elements of King. Yeah, right. Okay. Look, I mean, I, I think it's a very interesting discussion, and I and I think we've gone over over the threshold of time that we were anticipating to take. Um, so we might actually look to wrap it up there. Um, I think next time we catch up, we might look into some of those American politics that we managed to sidetrack ourselves with halfway through. So there's a couple of books we read last year, um, including Hillbilly Elegy, that we um, that I think touch on some of these subjects in, in American politics and American cultural politics, which is certainly a theme for both of us. So I think next time we might jump into some of those themes and, um, and really explore that in a little bit more detail and, and where the modern America is um, relative to its... Um, it's interesting past. So thank you, Amal. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, listeners.